about private investigations. Yeah. One of the things that comes up a lot are on our investigative side is what are the things that investigators can do? How are they done? A lot of have to, uh, people have questions about things like asset searches. So today we're talking live with potential questions about investigation. So we had some that come by email. We also have our live chat on Rumble where you can put in questions there. So far, one of the questions has to do with divorce cases. How do you handle hidden assets there? How do you do an asset search? One of the questions has to do with forged documents. Another one gets into digital forensics. So if you have a, a mobile device like a uh, cell phone or a tablet, can you get forensics on those? Another very common question that comes up is what information is available from vehicle telematics? Like, does your vehicle have any information about location? Can you hack into your vehicle and get usage of that vehicle computer? So we'll dive into those one at a time. First, the most common question is asset searching. What goes into an asset search. Many times the client for an investigation has a reason that they want to run an asset. Sometimes it has to do with a, they're in litigation. They have a, they have a lawsuit where they've won money from somebody and they need to collect that money. They need to they have a judgment. They need to garnish assets from that person. Many times the, the way to do that is to find a bank account and then file a writ of garnishment on a bank account. Many times it's finding real estate and putting a lien. Sometimes it's finding a vehicle and putting a lien or owning that vehicle. Now, remember, we're not attorneys. We're not giving you legal advice. We're just giving you information about investigations. But a lot of this is stuff we do for attorneys. So when an asset search is done, remember, it's not an electronic database search. It's not like you punch in somebody's name, hit enter, and it pops up like a Google search. Asset records are held as paper documents. For example, if you have a vehicle, a vehicle is evidenced by a title. There's a legal title document. Real estate is evidenced by deeds and recorded documents in the land records. You may also have uh, bank account records that are held in financial institutions. There's other types of records like corporate records, secretary of state filings. You even have things like intellectual property, patents, trademarks, websites, phone numbers, email addresses. Those are all assets. So each one is searched in the location where those records are held. As an example, real estate records are held at the county recorder's office and you can go through deed books and you look at documents, you look at filings and you find out what assets are held by that person. And you put that section on the asset search. Bank account records, this is the most common type of asset people wanna find out about. When people contact us about doing an asset search, it's usually about, I wanna find bank accounts. Well, that's part of an asset search. The way those are searched is, Bank account records, obviously, as you'd want them to be, are considered to be private records. You can't just go into a bank and say, hey, how much does Joe Schmo have in the bank? They're not going to tell you, nor should they, because you don't want somebody finding out about your bank records either. So if you're trying to find banking records, there's a couple ways to do that. If you have an open litigation with a person or a lawsuit or a judgment, you can normally do a subpoena to get banking records from financial institutions. But if you don't want to go through that, or if it's early on pre-litigation, you want to find where those records exist that are outside private banking records. Many times banking records are connected 
to what's called OSINT, which is open source intelligence. And those can be discovered by searching through other types of records. Sometimes real estate records have references to bank accounts, payroll records, direct deposit. Sometimes people use their bank accounts to pay bills that are public records, sometimes insurance records, utility records. So that's part of the OSINT search. There's also possibilities of getting banking records through companies, private companies that handle banking records. For example, there's the SWIFT code system that creates a, a record of every transaction, checking your balance, checking your ATM, writing a check. Those could be public records or records that could be searched. You may also find that some records are held by private companies that do things like check verification. You know, when you walk into the Costco or Walmart, you, you go to checkout on the checkout stand, normally you pay by credit card, but there's usually a sign there that says, if you're paying by check, we use checks free or paychecks or one of these companies to do verification. And those may be ways that it could be searched. You want to search for all asset classes. One of the things that's a huge mistake is to only search bank accounts, because here's the thing, no matter how much you search bank accounts, you may not find all the bank accounts. OSINT, check verification, account vetting, all the different places you would search directly for bank accounts will probably have most of them, but there may be some accounts that don't show up there. So you want to make sure you search the other records, because if you search real estate records, you might find a reference to a wire transfer for a purchase that was from another bank account. If you search vehicle records, you may find a lien holder that's a bank that the person has an account with. If you find employment records, you may find direct deposit to an account that's not in the banking record. So you want to search everything. Plus, you want to find assets that maybe are more valuable to you than a bank account. What could be more valuable? Well, we had a case a couple months ago. We've talked about this before where there was a subject who was a scammer. He was a fraudster. He did Ponzi schemes. He stole money from people. He basically said, look, I have this company. It makes lots of money. If you put money in, you'll make a profit off my company. Okay. So people sent him all kinds of money, hundreds of thousands. Well, it turns out he was just taking the money and spending it. He wasn't, you know, he was a Ponzi schemer. So what these victims did is they basically sued him. They sued him in court for fraud and they won. They won a judgment for hundreds of thousands of dollars. But now they have to collect just to make sure everybody understands if you win a judgment in court and the judge says in your favor you win a hundred thousand the court doesn't write you a check for a hundred thousand dollars that you win they just give you a piece of paper that says yes you're allowed to get the money from the person but now it's on you to find the assets and get that money so you get a judgment now the person says i don't have any money good luck get money from me so we did an asset search for one of these plaintiffs and there was a few bank accounts, but not much money in it. A few hundred, a couple thousand. Found a vehicle, older car, had a lien on it already. Not much value there. Didn't own any real estate. But in looking through some activity, we did find where this person had a website. And they were actually doing business as a landscaping company. And their website was their landscaping company website. And you might think, well... A website's not worth any money. How can I get money for a website? Well, you're right. A website's not going to be worth any money to you as a plaintiff. You can't, you know, take the website and get cash from it. But what they found was 
this was that person's sole source of income and they were making pretty good money as this landscaping company. So the website was located and that it wasn't in their name directly, didn't have any bank accounts in their name, but the website had some code in it that we found that associated with this person. So we proved it was their website. So we took this information, gave it to the plaintiffs. They went to court and got a judgment to own the website. They own the website, the email address and the phone number. So now the plaintiffs went to this defendant, this judgment debtor and said, look, we own your website. This is where you make your money. Website was taken in 20, 30,000 a month in revenue. They had some expenses, but it was good profit for the, for the fraudster, the scammer. And they said, look, we own your website. You know, we want our money. If you don't give it to us, we'll just sell your website to a competitor or we'll shut it down. So now the fraudster said, well, let's negotiate something. And they came, they found some money all of a sudden, magic, magic event. Imagine that they found money that they were able to pay. So you want to search for all the assets and don't overlook anything. You may find something that doesn't seem like it's a, a good asset, but here's a good example. You know, we found a, a uh, life insurance policy that is an asset for somebody. So look for all the assets. Now, let's talk about other types of fraud that might need an asset search. One of the most common types of fraud that we are seeing today is what we call probate fraud. What is probate fraud? Probate fraud is when somebody dies or if they're about to die, they don't even have to die yet. People who are associated with that person are going to start thinking about all the money, all the assets. Hey, wait a minute. Grandpa Joe has a bunch of real estate. Grandpa Joe has a bank account. Grandpa Joe has an old classic car in the, in the barn, right? At some point when he dies, that those assets will be distributed according to his will. But I don't know if I'm going to get anything or I don't know if I'm going to get as much as I want or how much I deserve. So I'm going to start taking some of Grandpa Joe's assets before he dies. Or if he dies, I'm going to grab some before anybody else gets hold of it. And Grandpa Joe has a will that says, okay, the car goes to grandson Bobby, the house gets sold and distributed to the three sons, and my bank accounts go here. Well, if one person knows about these assets before they die or right when they die, they write a big check from a bank account. When the trustee or the executor of the estate looks at the bank account and says, well, there's only this much money in it, and they distribute that, they don't know that one of the children took a bunch of money before anything ever was distributed. They don't know that somebody took the car out of the garage that's worth 20000 before it was distributed, right? They don't know there was this other piece of real estate that was sold off. Probate fraud is absolutely huge. It's more than half the cases that people call us about every day. We get hundreds of calls a day. Half of them are probate fraud or divorce fraud, which is similar. The difference is divorce fraud is understandable. It's expected because those two people are already in a fight. They hate each other already. So why not try to hide some assets from the other person? Probate fraud is different. These are people that are your family that you're going to see on family reunions, on Thanksgiving, on Christmas in the future, right? Maybe you're the godparent of their kid and you want to know, even if it's not about the money, it's on principle. You want to know if that person's taking money from you. The other reason you want to know is because think about the word will. When somebody writes a will to give away money, the will is not just a name of a legal document. The will is what they want. It's their will. My will be done. Last will and testament. It's their wishes of, of what happens with their assets. If you let somebody take the assets, you're kind of insulting or not honoring the will of that person. 
right? Even if it's not about the money. Sometimes a person in the family who has less money than others will think, well, my sister is already rich, so they're not going to miss it. They don't deserve it. They don't need it. So I'm going to take more than my fair share. Look, if you want your sister or brother to have more money than you, go ahead and take the money that's that's from your will or from your inheritance and give them some. Don't let them steal it. Make it your decision. Don't make it their decision. So that's probate fraud. So there's another type of fraud that we're seeing in business. Let's take a look and see if we can find this. Maybe we can put it up on the screen here. Is it here? Is it here? Fraud. Yeah. So this is automotive fraud. And what's happening with automotive fraud? Look, a vehicle is a pretty significant value in terms of dollar amounts. Like vehicles now are tens of thousands of dollars easily. And what's happening with vehicles is people are finding ways to steal some of that money. And how are they doing it? Well, here's a good case of it's called fast money, fast cars, fast fraud. Auto fraud tops $8 billion per year, $8 billion. And there's a couple ways that people are doing it. They are finding ways to get a vehicle from somebody by not paying for it, but thinking they are. They go to a dealership, oversimplification is they write a bad check. Well, dealerships are too smart for that. They're not gonna take a bad check. So they say, you need to get a cashier's check. They'll go to a bank, get a cashier's check based on a wire transfer. They get the cashier's check and then cancel the wire transfer. What people don't understand is a cashier's check is not golden money. It's not guaranteed money. A certified check is guaranteed money but a cashier's check is not guaranteed money. Cashier's check can have a stop payment on it, just like any other check. A cashier's check just means the cashier wrote it, not you. The bank wrote it, but you can stop payment on a cashier's check. So if you go to your bank, you wire transfer money from one account to another, you get a cashier's check, and then you say, you know what? That wire transfer was fraud. I didn't authorize that. They're going to pull the money back, cancel that cashier's check, and now whoever you wrote it to is out of money. So people use it to buy cars because it's a high dollar thing. Can't do it for real estate. You might think, well, do it for bigger, for real estate. Well, real estate title companies don't take cashier's check for that reason. They only take a wire transfer. Another way to do it is what's called payoff fraud. Payoff fraud. So payoff fraud is when you have a car that has a loan on it and you artificially lower the loan balance when you sell it. So let's say that you have a car that's worth, we'll use round numbers, it's worth $20,000 and you owe $19,000 on that car. That's your loan, you owe $19,000 on that car. So if you sold it, you would make $1,000 equity. You sell it for 20, you pay off your loan for 19, you keep 1,000. So what people will do is do the same thing with that. They will write a check to their bank for, let's say, $10,000 to pay the loan down from nineteen dollars to $9,000. And then they'll go try to sell the car to a dealership or even a private party. And the private party or the dealership calls up the lender and says, how much is owed on this car? And the lender says, well, our records show $9,000. So what that buyer, the dealership or the private party will do is they will write a check to the seller for $11,000 and say, I'll pay the other 9,000 to the bank and get the title. So they write you a check for 11,000 as a fraudster scammer, get the car, 
Then you send a check to the bank for 9,000 and they say, no, this isn't enough. It's 19,000. So now you're out $20,000 and you don't have a car. And what happens then to make it worse is the seller will come back and say, hey, thanks for paying off the 9,000 of my car. They get their car back and they owe less money on it. So this is a very, very common fraud that's happening with automobiles. Very common fraud. Next question from our email list is, has to do with, has to do with telematics. Telematics. Telematics is what happens with your vehicle that you drive. You know, your vehicle now connects with your phone, right? I was talking to a person who runs a sales department of an auto dealership the other day. And he was saying, look, every car now has a GPS. Every car now has, has, uh, you know, maps, right? Has navigation. Used to be that navigation was an option. Well, now they don't even put navigation in cars anymore. They just put a screen, you Bluetooth your phone or connect it with USB. And now your navigation on your phone connects to your car, which is in some ways better because it has all your contacts. It has your directions on it. But what that does is it now connects your phone to your vehicle. So now your vehicle can collect information about you, where you went, location, speed, contacts, emails, text messages. How many of you have a car now that if you get a text message, your screen on your car says, would you like me to read this to you? You push yes, or you even say yes, and it'll read you the text message with an artificial voice. And it'll even ask you, do you want to reply? Yes, I want to reply. What's your what's your, your reply? Hey, I'll be there in 10 minutes. Your car is collecting all that information. So if you have an investigation, you can now use vehicle telematics to get records from the vehicle. In fact, it goes more than that. Vehicles now keep track of when the doors open and close, what gear it's in. It can even tell if somebody was sitting on the passenger seat. How do we know that? Because if you don't have somebody in the passenger seat, it's not going to activate that airbag if you get in an accident. It has a scale, a weight. If it's more than 40 pounds or 50 pounds, whatever it is, the airbag is now active on that vehicle, right? So vehicle telematics is crucial. Good example of a case. We had a person who claimed that they drove their car to pick up food at a drive-thru, went to a park and ate it, and then went home. This is a divorce case that had to do with infidelity. We looked at the odometer. The amount of miles was about right for that route, but the client, the spouse, suspected something else was going on. So we did vehicle telematics. What we found was that the vehicle was driven to a location, both doors opened, passenger and driver. It was stopped for 42 minutes, both doors closed, and then there was a passenger in the seat because it was weight in the seat. In addition, when the car first stopped at that location, both doors opened, both doors closed, but now there was only one person in the car for another minute and a half, and then the car shut off. What does that mean? It was valeted. So not only did they go to a restaurant, they went to a restaurant that had valet, and there were two people in the car. So what we did was we looked at the amount of time and the average speed of that vehicle. We did a circle of what restaurants were in that possible distance driven, and there was only seven restaurants that were in that distance. Only four of them had valet, and one of them 
didn't have valet at that time of the day because it was mid-afternoon. They only had valet at night. So now we're down to three. So now we do a little footwork, talk to the valets that are working, ask them, hey, do you remember this car? And that day, yeah, I remember this car. Now we know the restaurant. Now we can pull credit card records, receipts from that restaurant and find out when they went, what they ordered, what was on the menu, what was on the, the bill. The check showed romantic dinner, bottle of wine, dessert, two desserts, two dinners, right? So that was good information where if you didn't have that telematics, you would never know to go there. So be aware that that's available. Also, be careful if you're doing something wrong that your car can tell on you. Your car could be a rat if you're not careful. Another big subject of investigations, let's take a look, is ghost vendors for a company. If you run a company, you run an operation, people ask, well, how are they going to steal from me? What people will do that are in the know in your company, they will find out what types of businesses you do business with. And they'll even find out the names of them. Let's say if you're a contractor, you might do business with ABC Paint Company, buy a lot of paint from ABC Paint. They'll create a fake invoice for ABC Painting or ABC Paint Distributors, similar name, and they'll form a corporation and they'll send you invoices. And most companies will know that there's a threshold in your company above which or below which there's no scrutiny of bills. So if you get a bill that's under $100, it just gets paid. Nobody does an audit of it. So they'll just keep sending bills for $82, you know, $91, $68 every month. And they can steal thousands over the course of a year that's never discovered. So ghost vendors is important. One way to look at that is look at the address of your vendor list, your accounts payable compared to your payroll. Many times they use the same home address. We found one last year where the address the person was sending their payables to, one of them, was the same as the address where a payroll check went to. They didn't even bother getting a P.O. box. So embezzlement from companies is huge. Every company has some losses from embezzlement, guaranteed. Every company is going to have some. So let's take a break here for a minute, and we'll pull up another couple questions. We have another question about cyber attacks, another question about surveillance. Let's see what else is on the board. Credit scam. That's not really an investigative question. So let's take a look at those. Be back here less than a minute. All right, we're back. So here's a case that was something we worked on a while back, and we've told this story before, but it's important to know about from an asset search standpoint. A client had a large judgment against another party. And this judgment was in excess of a million dollars. And the other party claimed to have no money. They claimed that they were basically broke. No assets. Okay. So we did some research. They found a few bank accounts, a couple credit cards, a couple vehicles, nothing really that big a deal. There was a vehicle that was worth probably 11000 at the time. This was back maybe 10 years ago. Bank accounts had, you know, seven or 8000 in it. Nothing major. But we started going through the all the records and we found some payments to restaurants. So they were spending some money and some money coming into these accounts. It wasn't a lot. It was like 300 here, 400 here, always even amounts. And it wasn't through an ATM, wasn't cash. It was through a money transfer. And they were all different original origination accounts. 
Okay. How is he getting their money? And when we added it up, there was probably 60 to 70,000 a year coming in, which is almost exactly the same as what went out. And what we found is each month was a different amount. For example, it might be 4,000 one month, 5,800 the next month, 4,800 the next month. And the amount coming in was almost exactly the same as what went out. So basically what they were doing is whatever they spent that month for funding, they were just getting that much coming in. And it was all the even $100 amounts. So we did some research on the codes, the SWIFT codes that were coming in to that account. And what we found was they were all had one thing in common. They were all business accounts. They weren't personal accounts or business accounts, but different businesses. And what we discovered was this person was taking money that they had hidden in a hidden bank account in a corporate name that wasn't even in their name, but it was a corporation they had control over. And they were going to friends of theirs that were companies, businesses, and said, look, I'm going to put in $400 in your business. You transfer out $400 to this account number. And that was their way of wa laundering or washing the money. And what was in it for the business? Well, the business was having more revenue. It wasn't taxable because 400 went in, 400 went out. So they didn't have any taxable profit, but they could show a higher revenue. So that company got a benefit of maybe they needed to go for a loan or show more revenue for maybe investors. So it benefited them. And the fraudster, the scammer that owed the money didn't have to have a direct contact between his personal bank account and this hidden money. There was an in-between intermediary. And it allowed them to funnel over the course of a couple of years, you know, several hundred thousand dollars through this account and avoid having it go to creditors. And there was still over a million dollars in this hidden account. And we we're only able to find it by going back to these, you know, companies that were laundering the money and saying, look, we found that you're passing this money through. Show us the invoice. Show us your purchase order that you actually you know, did work for this person or they bought something from you. And once they were all kind of called out on it, they said, well, I'm doing a favor for this guy, blah, blah, blah. And so it turns out that the money that was in the fraudster's account was still over a million. It was not enough to satisfy the judgment. There was still some money short. So what the attorney did for the victims is they went back to these other companies and said, look, we're $242,000 short of paying off these victims. Plus our legal fees was hundred grand. So we're 350 basically short. There are eight of you that are companies that did this mon money laundering scam. We're gonna take that 350 and divide it by eight. It's about 42,000, whatever it was. Everybody needs to come up with 40 grand and we'll call it even because you enabled this fraud. You extended this fraud. You enhanced the fraud. You let this person get away with it. So now you have some liability. And three or four of them right away said, okay, we'll pay it. A couple of them resisted. One of them got sued in court. And I don't remember what happened with that case, but two of them submitted it to their insurance companies and their insurance companies paid full claim because it was under policy limit. So keep in mind that there may be third parties that are also liable for losses from a fraud or a scam. All right, so keep an eye on our channel. Make sure you bookmark it if you're watching on YouTube, on Rumble, on Facebook, on Twitter, wherever you're watching it, and make sure you bookmark it. Check out our website, Active Intel. You see it on the screen. We do these live question and answer with private investigator on a regular basis. You can see our email on the screen, 
or on our website. If you have questions, you can email in advance. We'll answer them as they come in. Everybody has questions about private investigators or for private investigators. One of the questions that comes up a lot is how do you get a license? We'll talk about in the next one. And if you do have a need to contact an investigator or even people in other industries, this website here, Actual Human, allows you to book live consultations with an investigator or cyber insurance or mediators or many, many other professions. You can book live consultations, one-on-one, -on -one, undivided attention with people in those industries.